1: Hello and welcome back to the Analytics United podcast with me, Jack Ellison, and my mate Carl Goodall. Um, we're joining you after a couple of quite positive performances, a maybe slightly disappointing draw against Newcastle, which says a lot about how far we've come this season, given that they performed so, so well midweek against PSG, blew away a team with that much quality, and yet... Um, Coming to East London, it seemed pretty balanced for a long stretch. Uh, I would say we were in the driving seats only for the first half an hour, um, and then things moved around in the second half, and it wasn't quite so comfortable. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about Peter Banks before we get into the tactical breakdown, which is not not classic AU, but uh, I think we'll have a little moan um, before we before we get going. But before we dive into that game, um, we do just a very short bit, uh, and say, Freiburg was very good, no. I think we were very comfortable. And um, given it was the most challenging on-paper game in the in the group stage, um, West Ham continue under David Moyes to make Europe look remarkably easy?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was an interesting game. I think um, controlled it. The first half was dominant. Uh, very comfortable, kept the ball well, created some good chances. We got in the box a lot, which I was quite pleased with in terms of where our chances were coming. Um, I think there were, there'll probably be some Freiburg fans who maybe feel like they could have come away with a point purely by the way that they hit the post and then blazed it. I think it was Hoffler that blazed it over the bar. Um, but yeah, I think all in all, it was a pretty dominant display. And obviously, the Peketa disallowed goal as well. I think there's probably some question marks. There'll be West Ham fans that came away feeling like, Ooh, that would have been allowed in X number of circumstances. So um I think all things considered, yeah, it was dominant. I thought it was funny though. I must admit, I haven't... um watched the highlights from any of the other conference league fixtures and don't get me wrong, Paquetta's goal was great and it was a it was a brilliant leap, but it won goal of the round. And I was just thinking, is there not been at least one absolute screamer in this competition? Like there's so many teams in it. There's so many matches. Like I don't know, it just felt like yes, it was a good goal, but disappointing that there wasn't Usually you get at least one thirty yarder.
1: Still living in last season, Cal there, with the conference league, shout. We're in the we're in the big, we're in the big league. Now. <laughs> I can't
0: get over it. I can't get yeah.
1: over it. <laughs> we're not not quite the big one. We're in the middle. We're, <laughs> we're, yeah. in, we're, we're in the middle league. But yeah, it was a good performance. I think you know, if we're talking about how that game flowed and, and certainly I'd understand if for both fans were a little bit disappointed with the fact that they didn't um take a draw from the game because they were quite impressive in that in that fifteen minute period at the start of the second half and um something mm-hmm. that you know probably was an issue for us across both games, but I think part of the issue maybe in both fixtures is that we were just so comfortable for long periods of the first half that um, we weren't quite at it coming out for for the second half um, and I think that that does that is heavily impacted by coming into games that you probably expect to be difficult, expect to be a real challenge, and actually find yourself way more comfortable than you expected to be um in the first 45 minutes and actually, you know, taking the game as a whole, we missed some good opportunities as well, as well. Packeters almost assist for Jared Bowen at the end, just unbelievable hold up play on, on the left wing and and, and spinning and playing it in behind. We had a couple of really good opportunities in in the match. And I felt actually in both games that we probably should have done more to, to, to put the match away in the first half where we could have really been in total control coming into halftime rather than the game uh, being in the balance. Um, But moving moving on from Freiburg and and moving to Newcastle, and the first thing I think we can we can talk about from the Newcastle game in in any depth is is actually just how impressive that first half uh performance was. And I know the BBC Sport article after the game talked about Newcastle being in the driving seat for 88 minutes or something like that. (laughs) Um I don't think that was the case, really, was it? And they talked about Newcastle fatigue. Eddie Howe talked about Newcastle fatigue. But we had one day's less rest, and uh and we played yeah. away. So we had the travel as well. And yet we looked really comfortable in that first half an hour.
0: Yeah, well, they were one nil down for 48 of the minutes. So I don't know how they were in the driving seat for 88 of them. <laughs> um But yeah, I thought, yeah, first half was, was yeah, I, I didn't feel worried. I expected to feel worried. I think there's probably some scar tissue from last season's result. I felt quietly confident that we would definitely perform better than then because we've come on leaps and bounds and obviously I think them coming off the massive high against PSG, there's probably always going to be some drop-off. I think mentally that must be, obviously it's a hugely positive result for them, but coming off that massive high to then coming back to the Premier League, trying to match that was always going to be a difficult task. Um, And I think we're probably one of the hardest teams to try and play against after that kind of fixture at the minute as well, just in the way that Moyes sets up and how difficult he makes it for you. Um, But yeah, I felt like we, we did well. We controlled the game. Well, I thought particularly, I thought both of the fullbacks did pretty well in terms of getting up and down the flanks and making things happen for us, um, which I was quite pleased with, um, particularly considering how well Dan Byrne and Kieran Trippier have started the season as well. I think we managed to cause them problems. Um, and yeah I think it was a good performance, and again yeah we we probably were a little bit profligate in front of goal and and we maybe should have asserted a bit more control um had we had we converted some of the chances that we were unable to um and I think yeah, right to highlight that sort of fifteen minute spell again after the second half um where it yeah we just seemed to lapse a bit and um letting those goals um the yeah both of which were good goals. The trippy across. I think we both spoke about beforehand about how just how good that was. obviously we'll talk about that in a bit more detail and the things that led to that. But really, when it comes to it, you kind of just have to accept that that was an incredible assist and there's not there's, after that there's not a great deal you can you can do um but I think what I will say on a positive um is that despite these lapses that we seem to be having after the second half and maybe not hitting those levels that we've matched in the first half previous West Ham teams would have capitulated there and continued to ship goals and then end up losing. Whereas what we've seen, um, which is a real positive, I think, obviously it's disappointing that we are conceding those goals, but the teams seem to seem to galvanise around those moments and really fight our way back into it. And I think the last 15 minutes of the game, we were in the ascendancy and I think as soon as could have scored I, there was moments where I thought we might go on a nick it I think the sort of the place seemed electric the team seemed really up for it again and I think that sort of camaraderie and togetherness back in the squad after what was obviously a disappointing season apart from the conference league last season uh, is great to see and everyone seems to be playing for each other and um, everyone seems to be carrying the load which is is a real positive
1: yeah I mean Bowen had that chance at the end and Ben Rama just sort of I mean, he couldn't react in time to, to, to Pope getting a, a touch on it. So it doesn't manage to, to, to slot it in at the back stick. That was the really big chance at the end of the match, which maybe made a lot of, uh, West Ham fans walk away from the game, feeling, wow, we, we, we really could have won that. Um, it mm-hmm. uh, would have been a very good win, uh, for us. And in terms of the first off that you're talking about, I mean, you, you mentioned profligacy in front of goal. I would, I would probably suggest that well, I would suggest that it wasn't necessarily profligacy in front of goal. It just, we, we did not take advantage of the lethargy that Newcastle uh, displayed in the, in the first half. We were not aggressive enough as an attacking force. We didn't create enough uh, in a period where we could have created more. Um, And and there were a couple of nearly, nearly moments, you know, where, where passes to the final third didn't quite come off or, you know, this moment where we, Pressed well and Suchet won the ball, could have played it through to Antonio. Didn't quite connect the past. Um, and there were, there were, there were, you know, another, another moment where Antonio took a first touch that took him wide. I think that was in the second half and it got called back for offside and it was never offside. And yeah, maybe that gives us a segue to talk, talk about how should Bruno Gimra should been sent off? Should Miguel Amaron being sent off? Maybe I'm a little bit more questionable on, on that one, but he did give a yellow for, to, to Emerson for waving a card by the letter of the law and being having any sort of consistency as a ref, probably Almeron should have got one um, on too. So I think there's a strong argument, certainly around Gimrayesh and, and potentially around Almiron. The free kick that is given um, when Packer yeah. wins the ball off Tonali, which is just <laughs> never a free kick. A very strange um free kick, obviously leads to to the Newcastle goal. I feel completely hypocritical talking about you know blocking and and the impact of of blocking and a little bit of shit in the box because it's something that we're good at a, a, as a team, but uh, they do very well Newcastle um to execute a block on Edson Alvarez, which causes the misplaced um header and and leads to the the, the first goal um i think that's Tanali and uh fabian Shah, uh sandwiching at san so, alvarez both running into him one in the back and one uh backing into him uh, and by the time he can see again and is out of the block the ball's basically right in front of him and he he can't judge where to to, to put his header um and then uh again on the on the on the on the second Newcastle goal, there is a shove in the back from from Isak. Which you have to think, if if the ref had seen it, um, yeah, God knows. I mean, Peter Bank has Banks had such a poor game; he may have seen it and ignored it. But um, you have to think, if the ref sees that, um, it, it it gets pulled back for a for a for a free kick. Uh, I I would say though, i be very clear on this: it does not in any way reach the VAR <laughs> threshold. There is no. no way that VAR should be intervening on on uh little things um like that i think it's just too it's too too unclear as to whether that is enough to to knock um a good off off balance um but yeah so a couple of very well i'm more than a couple of very strange uh (laughs) refereeing decisions that certainly impacted um the flow of the game we talked just in that uh i talked just in that section there about how Thomas Suchek on on one occasion just failed to play Antonio through on goal. And it's something that we spoke about before the game. It's something that we're going to talk about again in this episode. We don't want to go over all ground too much. We're going to try and keep it a little bit light. Um, But... Mohammed Kudus comes on for the last 20 minutes he scores a goal he creates loads he receives loads in the pockets he's behind exploiting the space behind um Newcastle's midfield they like to to step out and press they're always trying to engage so if an eight steps out that's going to open a gap between the center back and the eight the six can't necessarily cover in all situations uh, sometimes the six Gimreich himself gets caught high as well so it can open really big gaps between the, the midfield and the defense and um yeah, and the most impressive thing about his cameo, Kudistus Cameo, was surely the the amount of times he identified those gaps and, and executed the the necessary sort of counter flowing movement um to exploit um, the gaps created when Newcastle do step out to press, when midfielders do step out to engage ball carriers, that created really nice passing lanes, often for Ward-Prowse to just be able to play straight through rather than ha- forcing us wide all the time. Um, you know, West Ham are a team under David Moyes that like to really focus on wide, combinative build-up, having Kudus in the team at 10 more than right wing Opens opportunities for the team to play through the center of the pitch more often, which in turn opens space on the flanks then for players like Emerson arriving or Soal arriving to be impactful on the on the wings um so he did a lot of things really well in his twenty minutes, and uh, by comparison, obviously he does score Thomas Sujick in the first half he scores the opening goal of the game, but he didn't receive anywhere near enough. Um, as a playing, you know, between the lines, he didn't pick up the ball enough in those spaces. He didn't identify the gaps to make himself an option. He's not half turn receiver anyway. So when he did get on the ball in those positions, as we talked about, there was one moment where he failed to then play, uh, the following pass through to, to Antonio. Um, and I think it, it, in many ways, we, we spoke about wanting Kudus to start in this game. In many ways, it, it probably encapsulated just why it's so important that David Moyes and, and, and the coaching staff get that decision right from game to game over who starts in, in, in the number 10 position because there are some games like Sheffield United that are going to really suit Thomas Suchek and there are some games like this Newcastle game that, that do actually really suit Mohamed Kudas.
0: Yeah I think that's it and I think that answers a real question for a lot of the fans who are asking oh who should be the starter who should be the starter should it be Suchek should it be Kudus?" and I think We've come to a really nice point actually at West Ham because often we've not had this luxury but I think the answer is that like you say, it depends game by game. They're both they're both good enough to be starters when played against the right opposition and, and given the right role um, and I think we're not in a position where we have an obvious nailed on starter because that's the only player that's good enough to play in that position and the alternative is Connor Coventry or uh, an old Mark Noble or whatever. It's like we've actually got Good quality players across the squad now, and competition Lots that we perhaps, that just... Yeah,
1: yeah, no offense,
0: but I'm just <laughs> I'm the yeah. Um, but we've got options now, and different, yeah, different tools for for different tasks, which is which is great. Um, but yeah, I think I think Kudus was was obviously brilliant. Um, I think he came on, had thirteen touches, eleven passes, completed nine of them, one take on attempt, completed that, one shot and it was a goal. So it's about as good an impact as you as you can have um, if you remove those two misplaced passes. Um, Won't forgive him. But yeah, it, it was great to see. Um, and even in the post-match stuff, it was great as well. Like the way he's speaking about the club and the way he seems to have really fit in almost instantaneously. And I suppose there's probably an element of help from Alvarez as well and sort of the affinity and connection that they have having played together at Ajax. But yeah, I think... It's great to see, but also I think it's uh, maybe a good point to touch on. Sort of, I know that Moyes gets a lot of um, pelters for how slow he can be on his recruitment and stuff, but he doesn't seem to get it wrong character-wise very often at all. And I think there's a real connection between the strength of that dressing room and the fact that he only invites people into that dressing room that have passed his character test Um there's a definite correlation between the success on the pitch and his ability to build a dressing room that really wants to fight for him and and play for him rather than maybe some of the mavericks that have come along to West Ham and left quickly after and not fit in, stuff like that. So yeah, I think just seems like a good time to give him a bit of credit for that. And sort of, yes, it can be frustrating to watch us wind down through the window as people are snapping up players left, right and centre. But come the end of the window, we look at who we have ended up bringing in and I don't think there's a single miss in there and that that goes down to Mavropanos as well who obviously we've not seen a lot of yet but again, someone who I feel very confident in having seen him in the Europa League Um, he looks like an absolutely perfect candidate to come in and deputise for Zuma. and if Zuma was out for a long stretch then I would feel pretty confident that the drop-off would not be significant at all Um, so yeah, uh, top marks there but yeah real real, real positive, and hope to see a lot more of kudus and I think, in particular, his ability to receive on the half turn and spin like momentarily and drive us towards um the goal I think adds an element of verticality like you say through those central areas that will be the antidote to the horseshoe effect that we have seen time and time again when we've when we have been in positions where we have a bit more possession than we're used to and we we look like we don't really know what to do with it and because we haven't had those players that are happy to receive in the central areas that often um, because it's either been Suchek who, like we said, doesn't like to or it starts a lot deeper and Rice just drives through himself and there's not that combinative play in the middle because it's all on Rice. I think now having those options, rather than having to play through back across the centre-backs and down to the other flank, I think having Kudus is sort of an option who can receive roll and run or receive and bounce it out into the channels, whether that's into Sifal or whether it's into Bowen or whether it's a switch into the other side, into Paquetta or Benrama or Antonio. I think it just really really sort of freshens up the attack, but it gives Moyes so many more options. And hopefully we'll start to see that play out, like we say, against different oppositions, different tactics. And I think we've seen it as well in sort of micro moments where we've sort of and again, to give credit to Moyes for something that he's received petals for before, I think some of the in-game tweaks and the in-game management and the ability to spot things that are maybe not working so well and coming up with solutions mid-game to ensure that we're able to maintain sort of a foothold in these ties against these big sides, like Newcastle, like we said, come off a four-one win against PSG. We were 1-0 up. We've gone 2-1 down. A lot of teams would have crumbled and Newcastle would have put a few more goals past us. But Moyes has made some tweaks with him and his coaching staff and we've managed to get back into it, which is, is great. And also, there's just something I really like about seeing John Heitinger walk up to Moyes on the touchline. There was one moment I was sat watching it with my mate and I was like, it's kind of cool. It's like it's very football manager. Just Heitinger just marching up and whispering something in his ear. I'm like, OK, yeah, this is, this is good. Um, so, yeah, just a lot of positivity, I think.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, hopefully it's something that we'll have to assess across the whole season, you know, like we've said in previous episodes, but it's difficult to to say just yet whether we'll see that rotation in the ten position as much as we would like. Um and and hopefully, you know, that 20-minute cameo from Kudus has been instructive for the for the coaches in seeing that actually against teams that are going to press really aggressively where I think maybe it's slightly different when you're up against teams that press really aggressively and it's a Liverpool or, or, or someone like that because you want to check there for what he offers defensively. Yeah. But I think against Newcastle, as good as they are, you, you can roll that dice and say actually having this ad- additional attacking dimension that can exploit what they do from a defensive perspective actually might give us a, an edge in the game. I think that's probably the thing we should talk about maybe in most depth this episode because there's a lot of of stuff that, that comes back all the time about David Moyes and you know how he's more um conservative in his in his approach most of the time compared to, to to other managers and I would suggest that's that's true um but at what point does it you know become at a cost to the team um and some people In the fan base, uh, you know, would lean more towards saying that it's, it's generally at a cost to the team because the team is so good. It has so much talent that it, that it could be more effective under a manager that wants to be maybe a bit more ambitious in, in the play style in terms of maybe controlling the ball more and being more aggressive as an attacking team. Um, and certainly being more aggressive as a defensive team. Um, and there are others that would suggest that it only really comes at a cost to the team in situations where. Um, we we get into the lead and we don't manage um, manage the game a, as well as we could. Um, and a lot of the time, I would suggest that Moyes has done a very good job of managing um, games. I think West Ham are generally very good at getting ahead, controlling football matches, defending well, um, and and utilizing upsides like being an effective team from set pieces to say you know the friedberg game is actually a good example although i don't think that we we put them to the sword as much as we should have in the first half and maybe we came out a little bit too relaxed in the second half weren't aggressive enough straight off the bat in the second half uh, and they get back into the game even then you see that that kind of mo- typical moise thing of like yeah, well, maybe they're going to come back into the game. Maybe we're going to have to defend a bit in the second half, but always know that we've got counters. We're going to get corners. We're going to get free kicks. And when we get those, we can be effective. We can get ourselves back into the lead or make it 2-0 at that point. Um, so I don't think the plan is, is completely redundant. sort to bring it around to, to, to what I think. Um, but in this game against Newcastle, um, before we sort of break into tactically how it functioned, Cal, did you think that we came out in the second half a little bit too, um, too conservative in our approach after being quite, not, I wouldn't say really aggressive in the first half, first time ever never really aggressive, but more aggressive in the first half out of possession uh, to them being a little bit more conservative out of possession in the second half. Was it, was it too much of a change that actually uh, gave Newcastle the space to, to, to get going?
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think there's probably an element of the fact that we've come into this game off the back of three fixtures against Lincoln Sheffield United and Freiburg, where if we took our foot off the gas a bit, we weren't necessarily going to be punished. And I think you, there's probably an element of falling into that trap of uh, almost routine, almost like it's we've come out and we've taken our foot off the gas, and Lincoln didn't really punish punish us, or oh well, we can control the match a bit, and Sheffield are not—they don't have the requisite quality to to put it against us, so we can just relax a little bit, conserve some energy. We've got some more games coming up. Freiburg to a lesser extent because they were a better team than both Lincoln and Sheffield United. Then we took the foot off the gas a bit and they obviously came out swinging after that second half break, after the break, sorry. But then we were able to get back into it because we were just better than them. And then I think you get to a team like Newcastle and maybe we just went into that lull again. But then it's like, okay, well, now they've got Kieran Trippier and Alexander Isak and Bruno Gimaraish and Sandro Tonali and you can't fall into that lull because the quality is there all of a sudden and I think it was like whoa okay yeah we definitely can't afford to do that um but like we said thankfully we also had the quality and the tweaks to to come back into it and make sure that we didn't go away with any less than we deserved um which was good but I think yeah hopefully it's a bit of a not a wake-up call because I think it was still overwhelmingly positive but it is one of those like if it does become a trend then eventually it will start to become our undoing I think because the quality of the teams that we face will progressively get better, um, particularly if we hopefully go further in the Europa League, which I think we're all expecting to.
1: Yeah, I think if we wanted to break into sort of tactically what happened between the first half and the second half, um, I think a lot of people maybe looked at the game and said, well, Newcastle changed. Um and and they were much more effective than they had been in the first half. And whilst I think that's true, Newcastle were much more aggressive. They did a much better job of getting numbers forward to support attacks. In the first half, it was pretty dreary. Actually, that they got the ball forward to into Isak or whoever. Um, largely, it was either Isak or Tenali, uh, and um, and there wasn't much support. And they did make you know one one key tactical tweak, which was that the the eight swapped over, so Tenali was on the other side. Um, in the second half, uh, where he was able to be more effective, but I think actually I would talk about it more from from a West Ham perspective and say that in the first period we we had a quite a clear split between um, a man oriented uh, approach and a zonal approach, um, and and one that and sort of released Antonio from that sort of deeper position that he can end up in when we play 442 which we'll come to because that's what what it became more in the second half. So we were more keen to reset Newcastle where we could. So it's not always engaging, it's not going all out and pressing all over the pitch, but it's where you can can you drop from your zone, go out to the man, force them to turn and play back then can Antonio, Antonio go out and engage the centre-backs and, and can you force the ball back to the keeper, force it long, get get the ball back. Um, and we did that really well in the first half, I felt. I think that the full-backs were really aggressive, which you need them to be uh, when you're doing that. So anytime the ball went out to to Newcastle's wingers, either Anderson or Almiron, Emerson or soufal depending on which side it was, would step up really aggressively onto their man, force them to go backwards and then you have the winger who in turn, then we'll disconnect from their zone, go out and press the fullback. And then Antonio can follow that in and press through the center back to the goalkeeper and try and get the ball to, to go along. And we saw, actually, I think it was just at one point in the first half, probably just after we scored, I think it's just long staff just plays the ball off the pitch yeah. uh, at one point. So you can see, even though West Ham are maybe a more passive team, we're not going to go all out and, uh, and press straight from, from goal kicks and, and really attack teams um, from a defensive perspective. Um, when we do engage, we can unsettle teams, um, and, and really sort of upset their, their momentum and their flow. Um, and there were, there are a couple of changes in the, in the first half that, 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 that kind of impacted on, on that a little bit. So Newcastle started with more of a single pivot and Bruno Gimraish. We had the, the most man oriented player in the team was Thomas Suchek at 10, who had been asked to man Mark Gimraish. And if you're thinking about, how did Suchek end up getting picked pick for this one against ahead of Kudus? It was probably that from a defensive perspective. We wanted someone really strong defensively to man-mark Gimraish. So Suchek was picked for that role in terms of maybe the defensive positives that he gives you above and beyond what Kudus could do. My counter argument to that would be that man-marking is a relatively simple job. And um, I know Gimraish is very, very good a very good player, but if you're in the right position to stop him getting the ball or to stop other players passing the ball to him, um, then, you know, the actual one V one jewels aren't going to be quite as important. It's about the positioning before that more. So maybe, um, but then Newcastle quite quickly in the first half begun to drop one of the, the eights, usually pushing up quite high. Um, and we saw sort of situational double pivot, um, and Trippier would, would push up on the right side. Uh, so they would go from beforehand, maybe more of a 4-1, uh, build up structure or a very wide 2-3 with the fullbacks, Trippier and Burn very wide and Gimraish in the center, um, to try and negate some of the, the positives of that man oriented, uh, or that man marking job on, on Gimraish. You drop another midfielder off and you create a situation where, um, the man marker, you know do i stay with gimraish or do i go with the with the with the other player with the other the other six in the double pivot now um to make sure that it's not easy for them to progress the ball through and then secondarily you have the same problem for the striker do i go to the center backs or do i stay actually and and keep marking this this extra player on the second line to stop them from being able to play through the center that slight confusion shall we say of over who had responsibility gave Newcastle a little bit of momentum. Um, uh, momentum is maybe not the right word, but they were able to play through possibly too easily at times in the first half. Um, early in the first half, they were able to play a couple of really easy center back to central midfielder, central midfielder to, um, to winger, um, or Isak, Isak turn can play to the winger and they were able to get to the final third, maybe too easily for David Moyes, certainly too easily for, for David Moyes' liking, but they didn't make enough of it when they um, arrived in those positions. And then I think we did a really good job of resolving that quite quickly. So moving from what was initially a 4-4-1-1 defensive structure, Antonio ahead of the man marking 10, and then we only step out of that and engage, like I said, when they play into the, into the, into the wingers or into the fullbacks, and that's when when you do engage with, with your own wingers or fullbacks. Um, we then moved to to more of a four one four one um system. So to to resolve that uncertainty in the front line between Antonio and Suchek over, you know, do we stay with Longstaff and Gimraj, or do we go out to the centre backs? Um we then would commit one one extra forward. So whether that's James Ward-Prowse or Alvarez—it would depend, actually, on which side of the pitch it was. Um, so, you know, Suchek, maybe if the ball's on on, on Newcastle's right side would go across and mark Longstaff instead of saying with Gimraj. That does leave Gimreish free, but when the ball then comes across the defence to the left centre back Fabian Share, that's when you'll see James Ward-Prowse make that twenty-yard burst from from a deep midfield position up to Gimriush, uh makes it difficult for him to spin on receiving, forces him to play the ball backwards. And then again, you can press through. So whether that's Sucek or Waprowse continuing on or Antonio then detaching himself and continuing on, you press through that player, through the centre-back, the ball goes back to the keeper, you force it long. Um, and that, that's maybe one of the elements for Newcastle... Um, talking about getting distracted from West Island talking about what Newcastle could maybe improve on Nick Pope's a great keeper but could they do with someone who's a little bit more relaxed in those situations um, because Pope can end up being forced along if you're able to press through the center backs and it can make it a little bit more difficult for Newcastle to to keep control of the match in in the way that they might like to um, the problem is in the second half, Perhaps reacting to some of those moments where Newcastle played through too easy, perhaps thinking we're 1-0 up and Newcastle are a good side. If we can sit in our in our compact defensive structure, we can make this really difficult for them and and, and keep this lead and maybe get a goal, like I said, from a corner or any kind of set piece in, in the second half. We switched from that more aggressive situational approach where we would step out and press at times to a much more conservative four-four-two uh mid-block, which became often a low block um where Antonio plus one, I think at the start, it's Sucek, and you continue with the first half relationship where dependent on where the ball is, any of the midfielders can really become the 10 alongside Sucek. That created problems for us actually. So alongside Antonio, that created problems for us early in the second half because at times we didn't have a left midfield. <laughs> you know, Pakete would maybe become right. the 10 alongside Antonio, but we, we didn't really work out the responsibility of who was then going to really move across to the left side. It was only after the Newcastle goals I felt, but it became clear, okay, James Will Prowse is going to be the left midfielder now. And it's going to be Paqueta and Antonio as the front two. But the point is, as those players were no longer engaging on the defenders, they were then you know, trying to deny the ball moving into the two midfielders, the double pivot that Newcastle were playing, as opposed to the single pivot they started the game with. Um, and it, in the end, I think it probably made it just a little bit too easy for Newcastle to play around the outside um, and work the ball to the final third. And then something that we see cropping up in the final third that that definitely uh, le- eventually leads to the goal, but we, we can see it preceding um, the second goal where Trippier gets free on the right side, is that Dan Byrne, now that they're able to progress so easily to the final third when it wasn't quite so easy for them to control the game when they're progressing to the final third, now that, you know, sit the two centre-backs, we get through and we can force West Ham structure into being two lines of four, on the edge of the box very, very easily. Um, that's when you start to see Dan Byrne being able to leave the, the, the starting back three, if you like, when they're building up and committing all the way into the front line, it becomes a front five. And then that forces the question for West Ham, who is the player that you're going to drop back in to, to your back four to match up and make it a five. So you're not overloaded. And we just, I don't think we really worked out the answer to that question, um, quickly enough. Um, we were using the wingers, so it would be Bowen dropping in if it was um, on the on the right side or Paketa dropping in on the left side if he was left midfield or Ward-Prowse or whoever it was. Uh, and you see one moment, perfect example of them of being able to, so Dan Byrne makes a run into a central space alongside Isak. It forces Sufal to come narrow. That should create a situation where Paketa knows I've got to go and drop back because it's going to create the spare man. The switch is on. Packet hasn't done the job of dropping back, the switch goes over the top of everyone, trip is free, and you get a wild a cross uh, first time through to ESAC. So a couple of interesting tactical changes from both managers um that that, that impacted the game. Um but maybe the the landing question uh, from a West Ham perspective is could we have been more aggressive in the first half to maximize Newcastle's lethargy and get more than one goal ahead and could we have actually come out for the second half and continued to be aggressive rather than saying we're one of luck we're going to sit on this and actually did that create the situation where Newcastle could grow into the game and, and, and eventually got themselves ahead
0: yeah I think so and I think it's like we said uh, it's it's been an age-old question really of when do we dig in and do we dig in too early and I think I understand why we we sat off, um, I think, partly like we've said, um, we had one day fewer <laughs> to rest than, than Newcastle did. And I think it was probably an element of, OK, well, if we if we continue to try and match that intensity, are we going to just have the equivalent situation but at the end of the match rather than at the start of the second half because we're going to try and keep gung, gung-ho and then well, Gungho's probably a bit excessive for David Moyes, but you know what I mean, that level of intensity. Uh, And then we have the eventual drop-off, which means that instead of their goals coming within the first 15 minutes of the second half, they come at the end of the second half. And um, we then probably end up losing because there's not enough time for us to turn the tide and get back into it. So... I understand it from that point of view, but I think there's probably a middle ground where you maybe don't drop the line quite so deep, or maybe you commit to a few more pressing triggers than just the, the front two. So I think, yeah, there is an element, but then I think as well, there's with, with the goal. And like we've said, the trippy across was just a weldy And uh, yes, Paqueta should have known to to slip in there and cover, but I think as well, it kind of comes with that hybrid nature of well whoever's closest drop in because you've got Ward-Prowse doubling up as the left mid at times but then Paquetá's being the left mid at times and then switching as the eight and i think with that where it is a little bit up to them in the moment there is always going to be those elements of confusion and, and that sort of lapse of con- concentration of not knowing when and who so
1: um, i i also think as well one of the interesting things about this one is is that because it's burn that's going. I think it complicates it further because a lot yep. of teams would be using an attacking midfielder, so it's easy for someone's got responsibility. Do you know it's yeah. someone's man? So Alvarez will drop off with that player, or he'll point to that player. Centre back goes, someone else points, and then yeah. you know you have that kind of but communication. The attacking midfielder is still there throughout the (laughs) back line but because it's burn who's coming all the way from left back or left center back in the build-up shape and just flying on this on this diagonal run into sort of a striking position there's no one who's coming with that who's initially got responsibility so there's no one there's not not that cascading sort of communication of passing on responsibility someone has to take responsibility for burn but then that has created a gap somewhere else yeah which someone has to in turn identify but no one's going to tell them you know it's difficult because the guy's massive and that's so, what I was you just know it say, it's not like compensations in the back line which creates yeah. space elsewhere it's an interesting tactic from from Eddie
0: Howe 100% and I think yeah that that was the only thing I was going to add it's like these these numerical superiorities and positional overloads are not they're nothing they're not anything new like we see these all the time it's what a lot of the best managers are trying to do a lot of the time it's why you have Cavardio coming from centre-back and taking on playmaking responsibilities around the edge of the box. Um, however, I think when it is a sort of battering ram, six foot seven, Dan Byrne, who's probably not being asked to get on the ball at all. He's just being asked to go and pin one of the centre-backs and give them something to think about. I think there are, it does limit the players that are going to take responsibility for that as well because I think really the defence look at it and go... Well, he has to be one of Zuma, Agard, or Alvarez's man because the rest of us are far too small to deal with that. Um, and I think then that adds an an added element of confusion and uh, sort of shirked responsibility almost. Shirked is harsh because it is like you say, just a good tactical adaptation from how to notice that and to give us something extra to worry about but I think if you're Sufal looking at that you're probably going come on lads he's one he's for you surely (laughs) like that's not fair um but yeah it it was uh yeah uh it's not something I would have forecast or predicted Eddie Howe to do but I think it comes with that as sort of attritional play almost whereas if we do sit off he can afford to commit more and more people and the more people you do commit eventually something's going to give eventually those holes are going to open up and yes it's not Dan Burns the extra man and he's the one that's going to get on the ball it's Dan Burns the extra man and the plan here is not to get Dan Burn on the ball it's to create that space for the real provider which is Kieran Trippier to then find the pocket because he's the one with the intelligence and the delivery to make things happen and Dan Burn's almost just a decoy to just trick us into thinking that he's a threat when really he's not there to even try and get on the end of the ball either because it's Isaac that eventually attacks it. He's just there to cause a problem in the box in a similar way to how we sometimes use Suchek and Antonio. It's very similar. Pin them back and then you get Bowen to get on the cutback or yeah, that that sort of it creates space in the box and unfortunately for us, we were unable to defend those spaces as well as we would have to, to to not concede in those moments.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the, the the key thing to land on is 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 just to bring it back round to that, you know, by being more conservative in the second half, you open the opportunity for them to commit Dan Burden into these, yeah. you know, flying forward runs that create the overloads in the back line and create the space for Kieran Trippier. Because if you are stepping out to reset and you are stepping out to to press with the wingers and the fullbacks are committing high at times as well to try and force Newcastle to reset, force them to go long at times. Then Dan Burn's going to need to be further back to help out in build-up. Should the ball go back to him? Should the ball go back to Pope? He needs to be that option on the on the left side of the pitch. Um, and yeah, w- without that aggression defensively, um, it does make it a little bit easier for him for him to commit himself higher because you know what's what's going to go wrong really if, if they if they lose the ball. Um, because they've got that cover and we've only got a few players up at the top end of the pitch to, to, to make anything yeah. of it, especially if you, you know, by forcing the overloads, you're getting Bowen tucking back in as a right wing back half the time. It's making the gap so big, you know, like at times we saw, I suppose last season when things weren't going, it's just too far really for, for us to transition forwards really, really quickly. And it allows teams to overload too many players onto the, onto the back line. Lastly, on the on, on, on tactics from, from Newcastle before we we're gonna talk a little bit about Lucas Paceta becoming a nine at the end of the game and, and 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 how that has changed um maybe how we look at things going forward. Um is just that I think my 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 other complaint <laughs> um about the game was I think we were we were a little bit too I think it was the right strategy to go long we've recorded our highest long pass percentage of the season. I think the furthest average distance in terms of yep. passes in the match um, so far this season, it was the right mm-hmm. strategy to go long. And, you know, I spoke to John McKenzie um, from, from TIFO, who's a listener to the pod about um how to, 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 to find gaps in Newcastle's back line and actually whether looking at what PSG had done, could we do something similar, but just go long instead of trying to play through just, go straight over the top of the defence and play into people like Antonio, play into someone like Paketa or if Suchek is on the pitch, use him. I was thinking of Kudas being there as well as someone who could make runs behind and and create problems. But all of these options to to play more direct to, I was glad we did that. But play a pass. Play a pass before you do it. You know, draw the press before you do it. If you're just going straight long, it makes it a little bit too easy for, for Newcastle. And I felt... You know, at times all it needed was a good to just take the goal kick and roll it to Ariola. Would have been enough to create that extra yard of space for Antonio to win a header, rather than there being so many players able to be around him makes it makes it harder for us to to get those staging points higher up the pitch. Talking of staging points and talking about someone who did it so well, Lucas Pacata, number nine, second half of games. Wow, really, really impressive. <laughs> right?
0: Yeah, incredible. Um I think. Out of possession, I kind of already knew that he would be decent in those moments because I think we have seen that increasingly so, that he is... uh, Tenacious and increasingly intelligent presser in terms of knowing when to step up and when to trigger a press and who to chase and which angle to shut down and where to therefore channel the opposition's build up. And I think he, he's done that effectively for a long time. And it makes sense that he would be able to transpose that from a left midfield or a number eight or a number 10 position into a, a number nine position. The job is very similar. Um, because the way we want to force them to build up is largely the same in these moments Um, but I think it was his in possession play as an outlet that I just did not anticipate Um, we've spoke at length uh, over the past however many seasons it feels like forever now about how unique Antonio is and how integral he is to this system in respects to him being our primary outlet and not many players in the world possessing the sort of physicality and upper body strength to be able to hold off even the biggest and most physical of center backs and sort of bring that ball down and make things happen and
1: apart from Joel Matip
0: apart from Joel Matip <laughs> um his kryptonite but yeah i think Paquetta just i don't know where it's come from i suppose it's always been there because it is kind of just a byproduct of that tenacity but his upper body strength in terms of just not going down to ground and I think like we say again to use the word I can't think of another one but just that sort of he's not willing to go to ground he won't let you take him to the ground unless you literally drag him down and, and he wins the foul but just being able to shoulder up to anyone put his arse into someone and hold it up and then release it and he also has exquisite vision as as we know and his ability yeah yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you got to use it man you got to use it it was my only asset in football it's all i had (laughs) um but yeah uh i think yeah i was i was amazed um winning
1: aerials uh, against dan burn
0: as well i think that's it and i was gonna say we saw an element of his game that I hadn't seen before for that goal against uh, Freiburg and the leap of, to get above the centre back um, in an almost Ronaldo-esque fashion in, in how high he jumped above everyone else. Um, so yeah, it's a challenge for those jewels to be able to hold off centre backs um, for someone who I would not at all associate with at least when he arrived being able to do any of that is nothing that I would have asked him to do at all. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have judged him on not being able to do it because I just wouldn't have expected it. But now he's just adding more and more and more to his game. Um, And yeah, I I mean, I I think, yeah, we probably will see more of it because he's shown that he can do it and it works for us and it works for him. So yeah, I think we may have a solution to one of the uh, persistent problems of what do you do when Antonio is shagged after 70 minutes?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and shout out to um Frederick Adamson who who asked the question before the last episode, it got cut for time. Um, but yeah, spot on, you were right. could Pakata be the solution as a as a second half uh number nine? It seems so. <laughs> He's doing the job very well um right now, and um and one of the knock on effects of that actually is that Kudus can come on as a ten rather than a right sided yeah. player, because if it's Bowen going through the middle it forces Gooders to the right side. Peketa becomes, you know, as the 10 in those situations. And it just looks so much better, actually. Peketa is 9 because you get the energy in the 10 position. Bowen is in his favoured position as well. And when you're dealing with as well, you know, Peketa going to be tight himself at the end of games. You haven't got that drop-off behind the striker where it can create too many opportunities to play through too easily because that players, if someone is going to drop from the front two to help out the midfield, it's the 10. Um because he's further up, we can kind of get away with it because if he's, you know, ambling out to, to a press, we can drop off. Could can become a, an additional midfielder and it can be a bit four, five, one to cope with the fact that he hasn't quite got the energy maybe in the last five minutes or in added time or whatever. Um So for lots of reasons, yeah, it looks, it looks very good. And I suppose fans might start to ask the question at some point because, we have seen a lot of debate on social media since, <laughs> since the last game. You know, what what does Antonio do? Um, why is he not scoring goals? You know, doesn't take enough chances, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We've always talked about Antonio as more of a platform providing player. He's there to enable other players to get into excellent positions. Of course, it's a bonus <laughs> if he can score the opportunities that he gets, and we want our striker to score the opportunities that, that they get. But combining such an excellent platform provider with someone that scores lots and is a lethal finisher expensive costs lots of money (laughs) um it doesn't don't come around that often only a few on the market therefore cost like a 100 million um so probably not going to happen at west ham um but people might start asking the question hey what about could we play, in some games, Paketa as the nine and play Kudus at ten and maybe bring Ben Rama into the team as a left midfielder and have Bowen in the team as well and you've got bord and Alvarez. Could that work against teams that are going to sit off and be really difficult to break down? And um, my answer to that at this point is I'm interested. I think it would be interesting <laughs> to see. Um, but yeah, until until such a point that we come up against a team like that, which actually there are not many of them hanging about at the moment, that teams that are gonna sit sit off and defend like that. I don't know when it's gonna be used because Antonio is just so bloody annoying for centre backs that it's gonna (laughs) it's gonna keep Allowing Packer to be as good as he is, it's going to keep enabling Bowen to score the goals he's scoring. It's going to keep enabling Soufal to get up on the overlap and get the assists he's getting. Shout for him at the end of yeah. this pod because yeah. God does he deserve it! What an impressive final fifteen minutes! You know, if there were two players that were really three. Players who were really incredible in that in that last section of the game. It was Kudus, it was Pakita, and it was Sufal. Sufal was brilliant in the last section of the match, winning the ball back, winning every single duel, and being on the overlap, winning, won a corner, um, and also created the goal uh, with fantastic composure to cut it back to Kudus, um, who did a good job as well to hang out on the edge of the box rather than charging um, in um, and getting as close to goal as possible. So. Yeah, uh, lots of lots of really big positives at West Ham. I think is the, is 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 the upshot of this episode, and, and lots of options as we've spoken about. Um, we're going to do another episode over the international break. We'll talk about the season so far. I might ask for some questions. I think um, yep. so. We, we'll do some kind of Q and A, some kind of analytics United West Ham breakdown Q and A, um, looking at the season so far. Uh, I think it's our first opportunity to start to make early conclusions about what we've uh-huh. seen i think newcastle game really helps with that and i actually think the yeah. villa game will really help with that as well i think by the by the time we've played villa by the time we played olympiacos that's when i'll start to feel really comfortable about hey what are the targets for the season where are we at um but we can maybe start to to suggest those um in the next episode so we'll, we'll do a bit of that we're also going to talk to um some fans we're going to talk to, uh, some of the groups doing really positive work around West Ham. Um, so there's going to be some interesting stuff coming out uh, on the feed uh, over the international break. Um, and and also, I think I'm going to write an article with some of the stuff that we we spoke about today uh, from the Newcastle match. I've, I've already got all the stills, so all I've got to do is write the connecting bits. Uh, so I think I'm going to do that today and get that out on the site. So if you want to look at some of the things we were talking about, some of the changes, first off, second half, the way the press functioned, et cetera, et cetera, um, you'll be able to catch that on the site this week and lastly yeah just thank you for, for everyone's support the support has been incredible we've been getting really wonderful support on the site people going through to analyticsunited.co.uk forward slash members and supporting <laughs> uh, the pod's existence people have been really kind on youtube some wonderful feedback there twitter and uh, dms and stuff so just thank you to everyone who's been tuning in um and and listening to the pod so far and, and giving us some really great uh, feedback. If there's anything you'd like to see shifted around, because we have got a couple of weeks. Well, I've got a week now to, uh, well, have a holiday. Really, but if you want me <laughs> to do some work uh, and change anything that we've been doing so far, please, uh, yeah, please do give us a shout and um, and we can we can shift some things. So it'd be great to have some some feedback. Um, but yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Cal. And, no problem. Um, we'll catch you in a week's time.